Out of the depths of the human spirit comes the true and enduring answer to what appeared to be a rhetorical question at the end of the Trunkina movement. What does the spring mean to me? What if the seemingly flippant response to that question in the last line of Trunkina's text was only a ruse to cover the singer's subconscious need to find meaning and value in life in spite of his apparent nihilism? At some deeper level of consciousness, our Trunkina knows that his answer is unresponsive and unsatisfying. In Der Abschied, the answer comes from the deepest recesses of his soul. If we refashion this question by substituting life for spring, notice that the question's import becomes even more potent. What does life mean to me? Putting this quintessential question on a personal level takes it out of the realm of metaphysics and into the pragmatics of everyday life. The question seeks not merely an answer that satisfies the principles of logic, but one that provides an existential basis for living. Der Abschied answers both questions, the human urgings that cause us to toil and suffer in a life that must end, whether fulfilled or not, the blossoming forth of the creative fruit of life produced through the burdens of seemingly meaningless toil and suffering. These all sustain life by continuously regenerating the creative spirit. Therein lies life's redeeming value. These urgings of the spirit are, for Nietzsche, the will to power, by which creative striving enables life to blossom forth. To will that a life of constant striving and creativity return eternally, like the fruits of spring, is to love life unequivocally and unconditionally. This is the meaning of Nietzsche's principle, Amor Fati, the love of fate. In the closing pages of Der Abschied, Mahler suggests not merely the notion of eternal return, in which he profoundly believed, but that of Amor Fati, the reinforcement of life's true worth by finding joy in its eternal return. In this respect, references to spring throughout Das Lied not only connote eternal return of life, but the desire for it, even if that means return of the pains of continual regeneration and resurgent striving that inevitably must be born along with it. That is the answer to the question posed so flippantly at the end of Trunkina. It is also the answer to the unstated but implicit question that remains at the conclusion of the Eighth Symphony. If true creativity can only be ignited by love, can it not also be thwarted or even annihilated by the fear of death? Continually struggling with the meaning of life and death, Mahler's answer is one of the most profound ever offered by a composer. Seen from this perspective, the five previous movements are only preliminary, though necessary, way stations directed toward the finale. The nihilistic vision of the graveyard scene in the Trinklied movement implicitly reemerges in Der Abschied, only to be annihilated by the life-sustaining truths that emerge during the closing moments. Loneliness unto death, expressed so profoundly in the Herbst movement, gives way to companionship, as the spirit finds a friend who is, of course, life itself. On youth and on beauty are but reflections of the springtime of life that energize the creative spirit. Then the Trunkina awakens from these dream visions 
and questions their meaning, still caught in a nihilistic rejection of life's true worth. In the final movement, the human spirit's torment is mollified and attains true unity within its inner being. Thus, Das Lied may be considered a response not only to the Eighth Symphony, but to the Nietzsche movement of the Third. Lust has finally found its Ewigkeit, beauty its true worth, and life its essential meaning. Although Der Abschied is certainly a farewell, it is ultimately not a sad one. Death has been truly overcome, even though not eliminated, in an afterworld. It is now viewed simply as part of life, necessary for the regeneration of youth and beauty in eternal return. The human spirit speaks out of the depths of being as an erdor-like figure that arises from an abyss deep within the self, symbolized metaphorically as the earth, to reveal life's true meaning. The words of this revelation are not propounded in Delphic riddles, but in an oriental vision that extols the wonders of life and the sadness of farewell. Equal in length to all of the preceding movements combined, Der Abschied evokes many of the images evoked in them, such as the sun, beauty, and the earth, all symbolic representations of the essence of life itself. Typical of Mahler's symphonies, the final movement is both a summation and resolution of the movements that preceded it. But unlike most of his previous symphonies, where conflicts are presented at the outset, each of the first five movements of Das Lied focuses upon an aspect of the basic issue implicit in the opening and closing questions of Trunkina. The usual conflict of opposing forces occurs only conceptually, between the movements, as it were, which present negative and positive aspects of life in separate statements that do not engage each other except by vague references. The conflict itself is presented in the finale. Dualities of spring and winter, life and death, heaven and hell, existence and extinction manifest themselves here as hostile forces locked in a duel for the human spirit. Death as utter and complete annihilation, existential nothingness, is represented musically by two funeral marches announced by the solemn tolling of a tam-tam, the gong motive. While its opposite principle, life, is given musical form in the lyrical melodies that contrast with the March episodes. The combination of Oriental mysticism and Nietzschean philosophy creates a curiously discordant duality. Nietzsche did not approve of Eastern religion's apparent antagonism toward life any more than he did of Christianity's otherworldliness. Yet Mahler instinctively understood what the great German philosopher refused to admit, that elements of both his thought and Oriental philosophy had common ground in their appreciation of nature and celebration of earthly life. The text used for this final movement consists of two poems. They are separated by an extensive orchestral interlude in which the funeral march, symbolizing death, attempts to strangle the life out of human existence. Written in narrative form, the poetic text conveys a sense of distance from the experiences being reported, as if related from another world. In this respect, the two poems differ significantly from the two drinking songs and the Herbst movement, which are set in the first person, and the narratives of the Jugend and Schoenheit movements, which relate events from the standpoint of a participant. Der Abschied, on the other hand, 
conjures up a transfigured world in which the essence of spiritualized being is brought to presence. The two poems coupled in this movement are distinguishable in one important respect. The first speaks of youth and beauty, thereby recalling the movements so titled, while the second deals with the moment of parting, thus relating it to the drinking songs and the Herbst movement. It should be noted that the lonely, disheartened sentiments of Herbst return in Der Abschied as the departing one reveals the misfortunes of his life. Mahler added the final stanza of the second poem, bringing back references to nature and the earth blossoming forth in spring forever, in order to end the symphony with words that convey the symphony's conceptual premise, eternal return and amor fati. In the preceding movements, words and text have equal significance. Only occasionally is a line of text sung to music that gives it a meaning not obvious in the words themselves. For example, the menacing character of the rising chromatic phrase sung by the tenor in Trinklied after the end of the graveyard scene, when he bids us to raise our glasses, and the darkened atmosphere in Trunkina as the singer listens with deepest attention to the little bird. In Der Abschied, on the contrary, the music is the primary focus. As in the earlier movements and in the Eighth Symphony, Mahler connects different lines of text conceptually by setting them to the same musical phrases. Long pedal tones generate stillness and timelessness. Hemiolas, cross rhythms, and arrhythmic figurative patterns produce a feeling of weightlessness. At times the music seems to exist on a plane where time is suspended, and we are held motionless before revelations of eternal truths that provide answers to the existential questions raised in the other movements. Mahler's motivic technique embellishes the text with hidden meaning and enhances structural unification and musical development. With twisted and distorted motives, actually deformed versions of life-affirming motives that appear in much of Mahler's music, the specter of the graveyard scene from the first movement is resurrected, it no longer rages wildly, but takes on the guise of a steady funeral dirge that implies total defeat. On the other hand, the life-enhancing themes are set to unsteady and uneven rhythms that seem to take the music out of itself into a mystical world beyond time and space. Mahler organizes this longest of his song movements by combining elements of sonata form and song form into a binary structure that proceeds along the lines of sonata form, modified to accommodate the poetic texts. Consequently, the lines between development and recapitulation are blurred, and the introductory section returns during both the exposition and the development. The movement's form is so difficult to characterize that Donald Mitchell prefers to consider it a free fantasia. Thematic motives play a symbolic role as in the earlier movements, but in the finale they return in a variety of different shapes to connote either regeneration or destruction. For example, the motive of woe, the falling minor second, so prominent in the Trinklied and Herbst movements, is transformed into the motive of farewell, the falling major second, representing a fond farewell to life that brings with it an acceptance of eternal return. Donald Mitchell has shown how the opening theme of Trinklied and its Dunkel refrain return in transfigured form in their Abschied. A cyclical principle of thematic progression 
also reinforces the concept of eternal return, as musical material from earlier movements is metamorphosed during the course of Der Abschied. Themes and motives that appear in the preceding movements undergo transformation that either distorts or redeems them, depending upon whether they occur in funeral marches or lyrical sections. The importance of pentatonic elements, the fourth interval, and the motto notes, predominant in the, in the closing coda, is also significant. Dualities are highlighted in both the orchestration and the overall tonal scheme. Mahler juxtaposes chamber ensembles that accompany the lyrical music against heavy brass and percussion-laden orchestration for the marches. A feeling of emptiness, but also timelessness, is generated not only by loose-limbed arrhythmic accompaniment, but by a spatial use of time that creates a sense of weightlessness. The breadth of orchestral sonorities combines the deepest tones of the gong with the feathery light timbre of the oboe or flute. The lack of a firm pulse in the lyrical sections that evokes a feeling of ethereal insubstantiality is often attributed to the use of the rocking triplet rhythms of the Nietzsche motive from the fourth movement of the third symphony. These undulating rhythms create an underlying sense of primal stirring that will return in the opening of the ninth symphony. Elements of Impressionism combined with proto-Webernian pointillism and other modern techniques. Harmonically, the conjunction of A minor and C major in a pentatonic scheme creates a tonal vagueness during the transfigured final moments that symbolize an avoidance of the dark shadows of the movement's opening measures by moving along a continuum into the light that never fades. It is the vagueness of the transcendent, of becoming one with the universal spirit, that is the essence of being, as well as its disclosedness. No longer do the minor versions of these tonalities appear as symbols for the negative forces that seek to destroy reverence for life. C minor is resolved into the major, and A minor is joined with it so that it loses its tragic character. The confluence of the keys of A and C is a principal harmonic dualism in Das Lied, particularly evident in the final measures, where neither key prevails, thus underlining both the harmonic and conceptual vagueness of the symphony's conclusion. It might be suggested that the added sixth, the one step above the trichord of C major, at the end of the work, is akin to the added ninth applied to the leitmotiv at the end of the eighth symphony one step above the E-flat major tetrachord, both raised tones imply an ascendance beyond fulfillment to a new stage of human existence. In the eighth, the continuation of striving. In Das Lied, the eternal return, which in terms of the entire symphony was, after all, in A minor. Thus, paraphrasing Nietzsche's words from the fourth movement of the third symphony, do the joys of life, Lust, continue to seek eternity, Ewigkeit, forever, forever. The flippant attitude of the singer at the close of Trunkina is instantly dispelled as their abschied begins. Two soft tam-tam strokes, the so-called gong motive, punctuated by a low C, plucked forcefully from two harps and reinforced by Sforzando attacks on sustained tones in horns and contrabassoon, immediately create a doom-laden atmosphere. Each stroke sounds like a death knell. 
A cold, lifeless aura fills the music with dreadful presentment. These tam-tam strokes return at significant moments during the movement's progress. Suddenly the sounds of a bird can be heard. It is not the cheery nightingale, usually imitated by a piccolo or flute, but a bird whose song is solemn and rhythmically unsteady, here played in the grayish mid-range of the oboe. This bird song is neither sweet nor light-hearted, as was the bird who heralded spring in the Trunkina movement. It seems, on the contrary, icy cold and mournful in the bleak, wintry atmosphere. A pair of horns enter on a weak beat with a piercing dyadic chord that establishes the key of the introduction, C minor, Mahler's key of death, used, for example, in Totenfeier. As the oboe continues with its figurative birdsong, the horn chord extends into a two-note cell that keeps falling by a minor second, the motive of woe, already anticipating the Abich motive that will redeem the spirit from its tragic fate, as the symphony concludes. Horns keep repeating this two-note cell in various tonal guises, always omitting the first beat of the measure. Ever so softly, the violins enter with a tender melody as horns and clarinets continue developing and expanding upon the falling second of woe. Soon the violin melody loses its way in the dark surroundings and gives way to the plaintive sounds of the oboe tune that switches to the major mode while the violins sink back into the abyss. Bassoons and harp play a repeating dotted rhythm that recalls the sighing motive of the Schoenheit movement but its gushing quality has been tempered by narrowing its intervals. Additional winds enter gradually during the introduction to form a small chamber ensemble that offers delicate and refined music with an oriental flavor. Suddenly the bird oboe becomes agitated by some unknown presence. Its fluttering becomes more rapid and forceful. Descending chromatics in its expanded figuration have an ominous ring. The bird leaps upward suddenly, as if to warn us of the approaching end. As she flutters away, apparently frightened by an undisclosed omen, the oboe expands upon the woe motive, while bassoons add grace-noted offbeat eighths as a variant of the horn's version of woe, and harps play an undulating rhythm on repeated falling fourths that both recalls the Nietzsche rhythm and foreshadows the march music yet to come. This rhythmic configuration will not only return later, but will be quoted by Mahler in the finale of the Ninth Symphony.
When the bird has flown out of sight, its fluttering stops, and a low sea in the cellos reestablishes the dark, dismal atmosphere of the opening. This deep tone is sustained through the singer's first strophe and gives her words an air of mystery. In what appears to be a trance-like state, she begins her narrative on a downward arching phrase that is the converse of the upward arching melodies sung so gaily by the tenor in Trunkina. After two bassoons cross over the precipice with one last reference to the motive of woe, a flute enters imitating the bird song of the oboe and soon accompanies the singer in a quasi-recitative passage that follows. The singer describes a scene of nature in the midst of transformation from light to darkness, from day to night. The stepwise motion and somber musings of the song recall the Herbst movement. She ends each of the first two lines with the falling minor second of woe. Bird song returns on the flute, now sounding sweeter and more delicate than before. The bird seems to flutter overhead like the forest bird in Wagner's Siegfried. During this brief flute-alto duet, the metrical time is irregular. Bar lines have no set meter. The passage functions somewhat like a recitative or a cadenza. This free-floating quasi-recitative seems to lift the music to a metaphysical plane, after the singer finishes her meditation, the flute continues its cadenza-like bird song, varying the oboe's introductory figuration and adding a dotted rhythmic figure in fourths followed by a sequence of minor seconds that ends on a short descending chromatic slide that stops before reaching tonal closure on an A-flat and dies away into nothingness, giving no indication of where the music will take us next. Thus the introduction concludes, enveloped in mystery. The exposition begins with the gong motive, played not on the tam-tam, but by harps and contrabassoon on a low C, as at the beginning of the movement. Clarinets begin the first subject after the downbeat of the first measure, on which the gong motive is sounded, with a strident march-like phrase that consists of three repeated eighth notes followed by the introduction's horn calls of woe, now trilling on each first note of the two-note couplets to create the impression of the devil's dance motive. Such is how Mahler begins one of his most fascinating and grotesque funeral marches. Descending chromatics and dissonant intervals play a major role in demonizing the music. 
mournful bird song from the introduction returns in the oboe on the figurative fragments that followed the gruppettos at the beginning of the movement. A pair of horns in thirds expand upon the woe motive repeated incessantly during the funeral march. When the singer enters for the first strophe, the tonality suddenly brightens to C major as she lovingly describes the moonlit scene after directing our attention upward. She sings an inversion of the motive of longing, followed by a major key variant of the Dunkel refrain from the first movement, repeated a tone higher. In the midst of this gloomy funeral march, the refrain variant elicits a feeling of hope that anticipates final resolution. Clarinets and cellos accompany the vocal line on an extended version of the gently swaying phrase played by the violins during the introduction. Lost in a dream world, the singer describes a magical scene of natural beauty. Sun and moon form a duality in the first two stanzas that recalls their use as symbolic images in earlier movements. Ironically, the first reference here to the sun, a symbol of light and redemption, is sung in the minor, and conversely, the passage describes the moon, the symbol of darkness and mystery from the graveyard scene in Trinklied, is sung in the major. This allusion to the first movement is reinforced by reference to the Dunkel refrain in the vocal line. The singer's reverie is all too brief, as the falling seconds of woe in cellos return the tonality once again to the minor, as the music reaches a full cadence. Shades of night cover the scene as the bird oboe adds the falling minor seconds of the motive of woe to its song, and then suddenly wails out a torrent of descending chromatics that recalls the end of the first quasar recitative, now accompanied by rocking fourths from the introduction, the Nietzsche motive, played by clarinet and harps. One can well imagine a scene from Mahler's youth, when he sat Shiva, the Jewish days of mourning, for the deaths of his brothers and sisters, with mourners rocking back and forth and wailing cries of sorrow. The oboe continues by inserting the gruppetto figure from its bird song, followed by the rapid chromatic figuration that concluded the orchestral introduction. Entering softly as the oboe concludes its wildly effusive melisma, the singer replicates the rocking fourths, as if trying to bring the music back in step with the march rhythm of the horn's falling seconds that return momentarily in clarinets. Another clarinet takes up the oboe's figuration, after which it plays a downward arching figure that will return with devastating effect during the orchestral interlude that separates the two poems of this movement. The last line of the stanza begins on three repeating Gs, recalling the repeated Gs played earlier by the oboe. They are sung emphatically by the alto. These notes are echoed on high Cs by a flute and followed immediately by the gruppetto figure. The entire phrase played in stretto with the contrabassoon. Once more, the introduction's long passage of rapid figuration returns with its mid-bar leap and descending chromatic sixteenths, pierced by a forceful thrust on a dissonant seventh chord in horns and violins. The falling sixteenths are suddenly broken off as this chord dies away. Muted violas and cellos enter forcefully with an elongated version of the descending chromatic phrase in syncopated rhythms. 
ending with a falling fourth to low C in double basses, reinforced by a piercing echo in flutes. The sustained low C slowly dies away to set the stage for the next phase of this extensive finale. Our next excerpt begins with the march theme at the beginning of the exposition. The orchestra introduces the second strophe in F major, an unsteady hemiolaic rhythmic pattern of thirds, sourced in the Nietzsche rhythm, provides an unbalanced accompaniment for the wistful funeral march that follows. Harps fluctuate between triple and duple rhythms, counteracting the evenness of the march beat and producing a sense of weightlessness. Once again, the oboe bird enters with the gruppetto figure, played at the beginning of the movement, out of which it produces a languid lullaby based upon its bird song from the introduction. A pair of clarinets and harp, later replaced by violas, accompany the oboe with the undulating Nietzsche rhythm. The oboe's meandering melody takes us back to the melancholy mood of the Herbst movement. It seems free from the bonds of form as it wanders along aimlessly without reaching full closure. Besides including a variant of the gruppetto figure, this formless song theme also contains the motive Der Tagis Chern from the fourth song of Kintotodenlieder. When the oboe concludes its tender lullaby, the Nietzschean rhythm changes slightly, becoming a steady flow of quarter-note triplets. As the singer describes the melodious sounds of the brook and the pale colors of the flowers darkened by the murky atmosphere, a flute takes up the bird song to accompany her tender lullaby. As this gentle passage continues, 
floating on billowy triplets of the Nietzsche rhythm. The music transports us to a dream world of complete serenity, the polar opposite of the dark, lugubrious atmosphere of the funeral march. If only this sweet music could hold us in its sublime tranquility forever. But second violins suddenly intrude with an emphatic falling forth, awakening us from what seemed like a nostalgic reverie. Tension mounts as the tempo becomes more agitated, and viola tremolos and fourths stir the air with unwelcomed agitation. Violins expand upon the second theme in heavy accents and nearly quote from Trinklied. Their descending quarter-note triplets ending in falling fourths that bring back the Nietzsche rhythm. A hint of the Ewigkeit motive finds its way into this violin passage, which continues to develop the second theme. Horns answer with the gruppetto figure, and violins respond with the motive of longing, which is immediately inverted in the horns. Stinging accents threaten to bring back the dreadful visions of the graveyard scene from Trinklied. Pressing forward intently and then becoming weightier, the tempo seems confused by this intrusion of darkness and agitation. Horns and violins seem locked in a monstrous duel, the former pushing downward against the rising pleas of the latter. When the violins reach the height of their ascent, horns strain upward in rising chromatics over waves of ascending harp glissandos. At this fearful moment, the music hangs suspended as if over the edge of an abyss, trying not to succumb to the strong pull that threatens to drag it downward into murky depths. But there is nothing to grasp onto, and so it plummets over the precipice on an enormous descending glissando in violins that lands with a shudder on a C minor chord. On just such a death leap, the tenor ended his terrifying depiction of the graveyard scene in Trinklied, with remarkable irony on the word Lebens. In only three measures, C major has been forced into the minor, evoking an impression of the harmonic motive of fate. In a prophetic vision, life as the blossoming forth of spring is annihilated by the cold hand of death. Woodwinds and double bass try to echo this downward plunge on a three-note figure that falls by a step and then sinks down by an augmented fifth, the Diabolus in Musicus, famous devil in music that was banned during the Middle Ages. This sudden plunge sends a chill up the spine. This dissonant motivic cell recalls the phrase Gib mir Ruh from the Herbst movement, thus implying world weariness. It undergoes a demonic transformation during the orchestral interlude between the two poems, where it will come to symbolize the destruction of spring life by winter death. Let's listen from the oboe's plaintive second theme.
Once again, the rocking Nietzsche rhythm returns, and with it, the key of the second strophe, F major. Triple and duple rhythms are paired against each other, as at the beginning of the second subject. The oboe lullaby follows, but the flattened E in the second measure of the melody indicates that it has been deeply affected by the horrific vision of death just encountered. The vocal line consists of succinct diatonic phrases in even rhythms against a melismatic expansion of the first theme, begun by the solo oboe and then given to violins. Soon the tempo increases as violins continue to develop the first theme as it moves into C-sharp minor. A falling second, the motive of woe, and the der Tag motive play major roles here. After a few measures, the pace slackens as if exhausted from even so short-lived an expression of stifled emotions. Reacting to this weariness of the spirit, the singer describes the tired people going homewards to a melodic phrase containing the motive of woe as it appeared in the Herbst movement. There it was sung to the words, Mein Herst, it's müde, my heart is weary. A clarinet follows with a triplet variant of the Der Tag motive from the second theme, a phrase that rises stepwise on which the singer begins the next line, Um im Schlaf, contrasts with the falling chromatic eighths in bass clarinet taken from the end of the first quasi recitative. A solo cello varies the theme as the singer continues. She concludes the third verse on a descending scalar phrase that ends with the falling second of woe and is continued by the solo cello on a descending modal scale as the singer sadly confides that only in sleep can she now learn youth anew. These telling words recall the Trunkina movement and its reliance on sleep to refresh and renew youth and spring. Again, violins take up the first theme, but this time their variations that include the Gibmiru motive take a downward turn, ending on the woe motive, emphasized by being doubled in woodwinds. Clarinets imitate and then extend the descending line of the solo cello that shifts to bass clarinet on heavily accented triplets that recall both the end of the rapid flute figuration that preceded the first quasi-recitative and the initial statement of the first subject. A similar falling line in the violins preceded the recapitulation in the Trinklied movement.
At the end of this descending line, an abbreviated version of the introduction begins with the gong motive, sounding just as doom-laden as ever. Fragments of the oboe theme that originally followed the gong motive are now scattered around winds and accompanied by various versions of the Nietzsche rhythm. During these rhythmic permutations in the accompaniment, the vocal line is even and steady, rising and falling in stepwise motion in a manner comparable to the vocal line of the Herbst movement. Suddenly a tremolo chord intrudes on a stinging sforzando in violins with a loud trill in the piccolo piercing the veiled, timbrous atmosphere. Oboe followed by bass clarinet rapidly descend to the depths on a long chromatic slide accompanied by a downward harp glissando punctuated in midstream by a sharp dissonant chord in stopped horns. During this long descent, double basses hold a low A that will continue as pedal point during the remainder of the second quasi-recitative that follows. chromatic slide on the bass clarinet lands sharply on a low D, thereby setting the fundamental for D minor. It slowly fades away as the singer gently whispers, Die Welt schläft ein. The world falls asleep. On the same repeated rising minor thirds played by the oboe as the call from the abyss in the Nietzsche movement of the third symphony. Sleep was also mentioned in the text of that movement, with the same meaning. It induces an inert Apollonian dream world in which one could subconsciously conjure up aspects of life that can best be truly examined after waking hours. A bassoon follows upon this haunting phrase with the rapid chromatic figuration that was first played by the oboe during the introduction. Horns softly echo the singer's last words. The gloomy atmosphere of the introduction hovers over the music with the return of the Nietzsche rhythm on the harps, echoed inversely by clarinets and followed by the gruppetto figure sounded twice in the low register of a bass clarinet. Finally, a harp sounds the rising fourths of the Nietzsche rhythm in fragments, leaving a low A in the double bass as complete darkness envelops the scene. Out of the somber yet foreboding silence, a second quasi-recitative in A minor begins as the soloist enters. As in the first quasi-recitative, she sings as if in a trance. Her vocal line rises and falls in stepwise motion, while the bird flute hovers overhead, singing a florid version of the first theme. Halfway through its bird song, the flute breaks free of the singer, inverting its floating melodic line on a series of falling phrases that lead to the same combination of fourths and descending chromatics that ended the first quasi-recitative, now played a third lower.
After the flute comes to rest on a low F that slowly dies away, a new subject begins in a fleeting tempo set in triple meter. Duple and triple rhythms are set against each other in the mandolin and harps, creating a sense of both weightlessness and imbalance. Two flutes enter to introduce the third theme on a rising phrase that contains the pentatonic motto in B-flat major. On a series of extensions of the motto's first three rising notes, set in different syncopated rhythms, each beginning at different parts of the ball, the theme begins to develop. When the strings state this new theme, having become a long-line, languorous melody, the rhythmic accompaniment switches to the Nietzsche rhythm, jockeying back and forth between seconds and thirds. The third theme, sourced in the vocal line heard earlier, contains a variety of motivic elements that have already appeared during the course of the movement. It begins with a sequence of two falling major seconds, the motive of farewell, continues with a variant of the Ewigkeit motive that rises into a turn figure. The theme then develops and repositions these elements in a manner that seems to lack direction, recalling the aimlessness of the vocal line in the Herbst movement. Cross rhythms become more frequent in both the theme and its accompaniment. As with the lullaby, the second theme, this new melody has no real beginning or ending. Rising phrases seem to seek shape without attaining definite form. Instead, the theme wanders about without direction or goal until it ends with a single measure of flippant staccato triplets played rapidly, as if expressing frustration at being unable to generate a definite shape. Flutes, supported by a clarinet, replay the sequence of rising notes on the motto with which the third subject began, modulating this time into A major for a moment, desperately seeking resolution against a sustained C-sharp in violins. But B-flat is quickly re-established as the singer returns, in a very restful tempo, she sings the third theme to the rocking Nietzsche rhythm that accompanied the violins when they first stated this hauntingly beautiful theme only moments ago. Violins develop the theme while the singer expresses her deep longing to be at the side of her friend, who symbolizes life itself. She sings to an augmented version of the Ewigkeit motive while violins play the turn figure, followed by the Der Tag motive twice in succession. Her falling line sung to the words Die Schönheit dieses Abends, the beauty of the evening, counters a long rising scale on the violins and ends with a falling fourth, echoed by the violins in duple metric couplets. As the tempo presses forward, 
cellos and horn play a counter melody against the violin theme, contrasting quadruple and triple meters, while viola tremolos intensify the increasingly impassioned music. Countervailing scales build on a crescendo that climaxes on a strong G minor seventh chord in violins and cellos, supported by low woodwind harmony. This recalls the drama of the Trinklied movement. Emotions intensify more in the orchestra than in the vocal line, heightening the impact of the text. Suddenly the singer reacts and cries out to her friend, life, Wo bleibst du? Du lässt mich lang allein. Where are you? Why have you left me alone so long? This is sung to an arching phrase accompanied by the violin's descending scale in duple meter that replicates the downward sloped figuration from Trinklied. As this moving passage builds to a climax, the bitter loneliness expressed in the Herbst movement seems to overwhelm the singer. Yet no climax is reached. Her last word, align, falls by a fourth, but fails to resolve. The orchestra suddenly softens to a hush as the third subject returns. During this segment, each of the singer's four phrases, separated by rests of a measure or more, ends with such a falling forth. This interval takes on a motivic function as it appears more frequently. So does the feeling of resignation it conveys. We'll begin the next excerpt from the opening of the third subject. Beginning quietly but with greater impulse, the flutes reprise the rising motto sequence from the beginning of the third subject. As they extend it, violins play the bittersweet refrain from the third theme. The music becomes calmer, 
The singer re-enters to describe her wanderings through natural surroundings, covered with rich and soft grass, sung to her own version of the rising motto phrase. She proceeds with a capsulized variation of the vocal line that was sung at the beginning of the third subject, now in elongated rhythm. The corresponding musical phrase is sung to the words O Freund an deiner Zeite and Auf Wegen die von Weichen Grasse schwelen are sung to the Ewigkeit motif, implying that regeneration is an important connection between human life and nature, since they both seek rebirth. Before the musical line is extended chromatically in the horns, first violins play the Der Tag motif, with the third note rising by a full octave instead of a single step. As the orchestra builds to a climax, a pair of horns ascend chromatically into an arching phrase and then repeat their climbing figure, now with greater urgency. As they begin their second ascent, first violins play the rapid descending 16th note scale that recalls the end of the second quasar recitative. Its last note is held for the entrance of the singer. She can no longer restrain her emotions, crying out, O Schönheit, O Beauty, on a falling major second, the motive of farewell, that both anticipates the avis of the closing pages and symbolizes her moving farewell to the beauties of life. Sung to the heavenly strains of Avikeit, she yearns for Avigen Liebens. At the height of this deeply moving passage, on the key word Lebens, the singer reaches upward from E-flat to E-natural and holds on, as if trying to hold on to life itself. But the violins play a rapid descending scale akin to their 16th note descent to which the singer first entered with her stirring call to beauty. The downward pull of the violins brings the singer to her senses. Dolefully, she sinks down to a low E-natural in duple rhythm that recalls the Dunkel refrain from the Trinklied movement. It is as if a sudden realization of mortality obliterates her hopeful yearning for eternal life, her words seeming to disparage life rather than affirm it. She sings despairingly of Lebenstrunknewelt, a world intoxicated with life. Both her words and the Dunkel variant to which she sings them force her back to reality, filled with suffering, disappointment, and fear. They also recall the Trunkina's remedy for suffering, getting drunk. With these tormented words, the first of the two poems ends. Violins continue to expand upon the third theme after the singer concludes, but the violin's thematic line takes a downward path and includes a sequence of turns. After a few measures, the violins repeat their rapid slide, landing on a forceful thrust that begins a tremolo, which quickly softens. With this shuddering tremolo, the introduction returns as a closing section to the exposition. In rapid succession, musical elements from both the introduction and exposition appear in various parts of the orchestra. The gruppetto figure is played by the English horn. The undulating Nietzsche rhythm appears in various guises. Cellos respond with the avikite motive, followed by the der Tag motive and the gruppetto figure. A falling three-note figure from the introduction is isolated, first in horns, then in a trombone. 
birdsong sounds uncharacteristically nasal when played on the English horn. Each of these motivic figures enters with a strong thrust that pierces the heart. The last, on the double bass, starts a tremolo in motion with a shudder. This ushers in an orchestral interlude that functions as the development section. Let's listen to the beginning of the reprise of the third subject through the opening of the development. Since the extensive orchestral interlude that begins here separates the movement's two poems, it might well serve as a vehicle for symphonic development of principal thematic and motivic material. The structure and aesthetic contours of the second poem that follows the orchestral interlude do not conform well with a formal recapitulation. Therefore, Mahler combines the reprise of exposition themes with their development, in a composite of song form and sonata form, unique to both symphony and song. The tonality hovers between major and minor modes of C, as if uncertain of the ultimate outcome. Common time and a weighty tempo are re-established as at the beginning of the movement for the reprise and expansion of the funeral march from the exposition. The gong motive sounds several times, more often than it had at the outset of the movement, creating the impression that its warning now has greater urgency. An English horn enters with the gruppetto figure, followed on the very next beat by another shuddering tremolo in the violas. Clarinets add the three repeating eighths in front of the two-note falling figure of woe as first played by horns during the introduction. 
The exposition's funeral march starts up with this clarinet figure, but the lyrical violin melody played during the introduction is replaced with an ominous three-note figure consisting of a falling minor fourth and a rising half-step, played twice in succession in the bass. Each time this morose figure sounds, it seems to impede the funeral march's forward progress. This three-note cell bears a striking relationship to a truncated version of the Der Tag motive, missing its falling minor second. The mournful character of the three-note cell suggests that it is the obverse of Der Tag, emanating from the boundless abyss of the void. If day symbolizes the light of life, this grotesquely misshapen variant of Der Tagist Schön connotes the darkness of death. What follows throughout the orchestral interlude is what can be characterized as a relentless but unavailing struggle to regain the original pair of falling and rising seconds of the Der Tag motive and hold it from the clutches of its malevolent reconfiguration into the motive of death. As the English horn continues with the first theme, it seems intent on reshaping this death motive. Its note order is reversed so that it rises instead of falls and becomes more rhythmically charged by changing from quarter notes to eighths. In this guise, the death motive seems to plead with its more sinister counterpart, begging for mercy in the face of impending doom. A solo cello tries to introduce a positive note by interjecting the lyrical music played by the violins during the introduction. But the sinister death motive played by a second solo cello, keeps shunting it aside. Its doleful character seems to infect the lyrical violin music. For after the death motive interrupts but once, the solo cello descends chromatically and then repeats the death motive, as if the attempt to affirm life in the face of death had already succumbed to inevitable defeat. On this falling chromatic phrase, mimicked by low clarinets and violas on the falling minor seconds played by the horns during the introduction. The music builds with ever-increasing torment, hopelessly caught in a web of predestined catastrophe. At the height of this passage, horns and strings add an extra eighth note after the first note of the death motive for greater emphasis, thus converting it to the four-note phrase from the De Tagus Churn motive, Cellos try meekly to emerge from the gloom of defeat on a rising chromatic figure, but at its height the phrase quietly drops off by a third and then simply stops, apparently unable to muster enough energy to ascend further.
After a moment of silence, the funeral march resumes, now in earnest. Its principal theme incorporates the dreadful death motive, echoed repeatedly in the bass against its inversion, pleadingly asserted by the flutes and oboes. In vain they try to recreate the definitive form of the motive of Der Tageschern, to blossom forth in spring, despite the onslaught of death. The motive of woe sounds painfully in horns and violins, as woodwinds continue to expand on the march theme with a sequence of falling phrases. Violins take up the march and heave a sigh as they again attempt to resurrect Der Tag, its dogged rhythms, played by the horns in thirds, are made to sound demonic by added mordants. But the violins' efforts fail. How tragic they sound as they keep trying to save Der Tag from the throes of the death motive, but lack the rising second that follows the falling second necessary to do so. For the falling second of woe must be countered by the rising second of hope from Der Tag, to be schön, to be beautiful, to rise to the day of beauty. This utterly pathetic passage was prophesied in the Herbst movement. Woodwinds sing out a fervent prayer on the motive of longing, followed by a retrograde version of Der Tag. Unceasingly, the ghostly march trudges on. Violins make an ardent attempt to find their way out of the morass of their failed attempts to resurrect and sustain the Der Tag motive by developing the first theme. Accented descending notes recall both drinking songs. The alternation of rising and falling seconds, the former in the thematic development, the latter in the march rhythm, pull against each other, creating a rift in the music as the struggle to redeem Der Tag continues. How touchingly violins keep repeating a diminutive variant of the death motive, trying to refashion it into Der Tag, only to produce it in retrograde inversion. The music builds on a combination of march rhythms, while violins have the lyrical second subject, echoed by woodwinds. Each try desperately to see the light of day. Frequent falling seconds make it clear that this is not to be. Again, the doom-laden gong motive sounds. Flutes and oboes, echoed by cellos in their high register, plead for redemption on an extended version of the death motive that now becomes the Der Tageschern motive. But the march keeps smothering the last note of the four-note Der Tag phrase. As the music builds, woodwinds and strings pour out their hearts to countervailing variations on the first theme, that emphasize its descending phrases. As a cadence approaches, violins keep struggling to find the true Der Tag motive. But where the music should build, it recedes and softens, reaching a doleful cadence, unable to find the resolution it seeks. As strings keep repeating as much of Der Tag as they can manage, they end their efforts with the descending scale that concluded the entire Der Tag phrase as it appeared at the end of the fourth Kintototenlieder. Thus the orchestral interlude comes to an abysmal climax with the shattering blow of the gong that signals the return of the funeral march. Although this despairing culmination of the orchestral interlude was inevitable, we are still stunned by its tragic power. 
Repeated again for emphasis, the gong motive is accompanied each time by the wail of the horns on the diminutive march of the introduction. Strings try again to complete their tag, but are too weakened by the forces of darkness to find the strength to do so. Instead, they fall to more heavy blows of the gong motive, given greater weight and power by blasts from the horns and cruel jabs on the march rhythm in low strings. These devastating blows are repeated three times, possibly an allusion to the three strokes of fate in the finale of the Sixth Symphony. The last of these blows on a low C in the trombones is played with such terrific force as to be terrifying. Cellos pound out the march beat, ending also on a doom-laden low C, as if to put a final period to the striving and yearning for life in the face of death. Woodwinds wail out the march rhythm with such power that it would seem that death has been victorious. They change the falling seconds to pairs of falling and rising thirds in the shape of the bird-chirping motor from the Andante movement of the Seventh Symphony, which itself is a variant of, of the motive of childhood innocence. The bird that symbolizes regenerative spring and its life-enhancing energy during the previous movements is dealt a crushing blow. At the conclusion of the orchestral interlude, the march rhythm breaks up. Horns play only its repeating notes, and clarinets in their deepest register disheartening,ly groan the motive of childhood innocence, suggesting that such innocence is gone forever. At last, the orchestral interlude concludes with the softly accented stroke of the gong from the introduction that punctuates this painfully tragic section. Before we hear the rest of the development section, here is the original and complete Der Tagesschirn motive from the fourth song of Kintototenlieder. While you're listening to the rest of this extraordinarily moving orchestral interlude, notice how many permutations of the Der Tag motive occur here.
Two soft strokes of the gong motive on the tam-tam set the stage for the third and last quasi-recitative. Directed to sing softly and narrate without expression, the singer begins Wang Wei's touching song of farewell to virtually the same vocal line used for the first quasi-recitative. She utters words of prophecy that seem to emerge from the depths of the earth. No longer does a songbird flutter around her. Only the soft tones of the gong on the death motive remain, sustaining the cold, dark atmosphere in which she imparts her sad tale. We recall how touchingly she expressed her longing for the friend, symbolizing life itself, at the end of the first poem. Now that her fondest wish has been answered, and her longed-for companion has come, it is only to say farewell. But why must you go? Why must our time together be so fleeting, she asks of life. As she concludes the opening verse, bassoons and then clarinets enter with the funeral march rhythm to accompany what initially appears as the first theme, stated by oboes, with the sinister death motive lurking ominously in cellos and horns. But this theme fails to take shape. Its melodious elements are replaced by the agitated descending chromatic sixteenths that originally ended the first subject, now helplessly broken into fragments. Notice how the oboe recalls the desperate attempt by the violins to complete the der Tagish Churin motive toward the end of the orchestral interlude. To the eerie sounds of the call from the abyss in the Nietzsche movement of the third symphony, a rising third, now augmented, the friend answers in veiled tones, coming as if from afar, singing the same strains that began the first strophe. As the march theme continues, it incorporates the death motive and becomes darker and more morose. Suddenly the tonality shifts to the major mode of C and darkness is lifted by the soft, illuminating words of the friend. The world has not been good to me, she confesses, beginning with a variant of the Dunkel motive and continuing with a sequence of falling seconds, the motive of woe. This motive seems to infuse the music with tragic presentment. It becomes part of the funeral march theme, with the rocking Nietzsche rhythm in clarinets and bassoons, and even more poignantly, the violin's tender melody. Woodwinds expand upon the first theme, 
reworking its musical elements, descending chromatic figures, the grumpetto motive, the childhood innocence motive, and the 16th note figuration. An ominous death leap sounds softly in the violins as thematic fragments begin to break up until they dissolve completely. To a phrase that might have had its source in a Jewish lullaby sung to the child Mahler by his mother, the friend expresses a profound yearning for peace. She will wander in the mountains, the eternal wandering Jew, seeking a resting place for her lonely heart, reminding us of the sentiments of loneliness expressed in the Herbst song. Mahler even refers to a chromatic phrase from the first song of Kinta Totenlieder, sung to the words, Als sein kein Unglich, kein Unglich die Nacht, an allusion to the loss of life in the blossom of youth. In the middle of the vocal line, just after the Der Tag motive is sung to the words, Für mein, the tonality switches back to the minor on a turn phrase, followed by the three-note death motive that cadences on the words that complete this verse, Ein Sam Herz, lonely heart. Has the feeling of utter despair ever been expressed with such poignancy? Oboes and violins try in vain to recapture the glimmer of light interjected into the gloomy scene by the major mode. But the minor stands fast, although the march theme again falls apart. It's almost hysterical, veloce, 16th note figuration, turning into groping fragments in the violin. The original version of the marching figure that became the funeral march theme is then stated by flutes and oboes and concluded by a clarinet in the same form in which it appeared on the oboe at the beginning of the movement. The clarinet continues with the oboe's rapid flurry of descending sixteenths, which conclude this time with a sequence of falling minor seconds that sound like a child being rocked in its cradle. Woodwinds echo fragments of the clarinet's meandering figuration fading into silence.
After a pause, the second subject returns in an abbreviated version, its opaque F major and gently rocking Nietzsche rhythm having a soothing effect. Mahler changes the instrumentation for the reprise of this subject, giving the theme to first violins instead of an oboe. When a flute takes up the theme, the tonality seems to move toward the minor and become more unstable. The singer continues with the friend's answer on a vocal line that is a rhythmic variant of a phrase that appeared during the initial presentation of the second subject. Her words and the music to which they are set interact. The musical phrase sung to the second line of this stanza, Ich werde niemals, is the same as that sung to the words Die müden Menschen, and is a variant of the words Mein Herz ist müde from the Herbs movement, now ending with a rising instead of a falling second. An inverted version of this phrase is sung just three measures later to the words Still ist mein Herz. The message could not be clearer. The lonely wanderer will finally find redemption, not in another world, but in the eternal regeneration of this one. A flute and oboe ascend on the Ewigkeit motive, repeated by a clarinet. The music seems to well up from the depths of a soul on a sequence of broadly spaced overlapping entrances on E, rising by octaves in strings, while the second violins slowly whisper the Ewigkeit motive. Higher and higher the music rises and grows steadily stronger, the tempo being held back with each ascending step to allow the light to shine forth gradually. As the octave E's build, the tension becomes almost unbearable. At the height of this long crescendo, the singer enters with the last verse, the one that will contain the answer for which the spirit has yearned so deeply. It is expressed in images of oriental mysticism. The light of understanding radiates from her, yet she sings softly and slowly, as if still in a dream. Mahler is emphatic in his directions at her entrance that the tempo be slow. He even puts an exclamation mark after the word langsam and the dynamic level pianissimo, adding the words ohne Steigerung, without increase, to ensure that this most important passage sounds as if from a remote region within the depths of being. The closing section begins in C major, with the heavenly third subject recalling both the first movement 
and the Verklärung from Act Three of Tristan. Mahler's paean to beauty, O Schönheit, that returns here, is not dashed upon the rocks of Liebens Trunknewelt as it was before. Here it rises upward to become one with the essence of eternal being. It is truly a redemption of the spirit, not from, but of, earthly life. In one of the most beautiful passages Mahler ever composed, the singer rhapsodizes on the third theme. In her final strophe, she sings a hymn to the earth and the eternal renewal of life, ever blossoming forth in spring, its bright blue horizons both unfathomable and unending. Duple and triple meter rhythms combine, creating the effect of floating on a billowy cloud. Harp arpeggios from the Eighth Symphony return in this stunning conclusion, contrasting their fluid tones with floating rollads in duple meter that add to the feeling of weightlessness. Only strings and harp accompany the singer at first. How comforting the Ewigkeit motive sounds when sung to the word Aluberal everywhere when it first appears here in the vocal line. At the high point of the ascent that begins this motive, its top note is sustained as if to imply that the promise made long before has at last been fulfilled. Although the tonality is basically C major, harmonic shifts in the accompaniment create an illusion of tonal instability. On the word lens, low winds enter on a D-flat chord that is taken up by the harp on a rising arpeggio that falls in A major. Woodwinds bring in B-flat against the A tonality which continues to shift between major and minor as the singer softly repeats the keyword aluberal on held notes in a sequence of falling seconds, which are suggestive of woe and hinting at G minor. As the violins begin to rise once again, the singer leaps by a fifth to E-flat, and then, as during the first appearance of the third subject, she rises to E-natural, an inversion of woe, rising half-step, that accompanies a tonal shift from C minor to C major. This time the singer does not sink into despair, but falls gently on the motive of farewell, sung to the word avich. A rising scale in the celeste, so prominent in part two of the Eighth Symphony, ushers in yet another repetition of farewell. Thus in but a few measures, fate and woe have been conquered. Gently, violins play the ascending scale of the Ewigkeit motive one last time, stretching it out over the bar. In a master stroke of creative genius, Mahler has the singer begin the line Blauen Licht die Fernen by entering softly just one beat before the violins reach the apex of Ewigkeit, and her vocal line floats on two sequential downward turns in duple meter, doubled by violins and celesta. This double turn seems to smooth out the falling and rising seconds of the Der Tagesschirn motive, thus symbolizing the realization of the beautiful day, so long sought after. It is also a reworking of the Gruppetto figure that opened the movement, and was hinted at in the violins during the beginning of the third subject's initial appearance. 
It also might be considered a resolution of the Dunkel refrain, the outline of which is contained in the phrase sung to the penultimate line of the text. Overlapping these words of eternal return, flutes and oboes enter softly with the rising motto figure that first introduced the third theme, over arching arpeggios in celesta and harp. To the soothing and restful motive of farewell, the singer lovingly calls to the eternal, Ewig, Ewig. Her sustained low tones seem to come from the very depths of her being, which is now revealed in an inspired song of the meaning of the earth and therefore of life itself. Violins tenderly repeat a syncopated version of the singer's double turn phrase, enhanced by shimmering tones from the mandolin, to be played almost inaudibly while flutes and oboes restate the rising sequential motto theme. Time seems to stand still in the closing moments as waves of arpeggios in celesta and harps gently float across the musical horizon to the soft strains of the rising motto figure in flutes and oboes. Caught in this dream world, the singer keeps repeating her last farewell to life, Ewig, Ewig. With each repetition, she holds on longer to the first note of the falling second interval, trying to prolong the ending as much as possible. By adding an A natural to the rising motto theme in C major, Mahler creates a sense of tonal uncertainty, wavering between A and C tonalities so as to produce a feeling of endless time. When the singer gently cadences to C major, the avics that follow no longer fall to C, but remain suspended on D, as time and space seem to evaporate. The falling farewell motive, repeated in strings, contrasts with the rising motto theme in flutes and violins, telling us that the end is but the beginning. Each motive is stretched out in long tones, until the singer's last avi, now but a faint whisper that merges with eternal being. To the woodwind's hushed C major chord with added sixth, the strings append the notes of a C major chord, and a harp slowly rises on the notes of that chord, ending with a rootless broken chord on the celesta. All grounding and substance has ceased, as human life becomes one with its source. The last sounds we hear fade away, not on a resolving cadence, but by remaining suspended beyond resolution.
The harmonic tension created by the conflation of two keys underlines the fact that no ending has been reached here at all. The sounds seem to linger in our ears long after the end, merging into the universe, awaiting the spring when life will again blossom forth in the infinite cycle of time. Such is the meaning of the earth, and therefore of life itself. Man confronts the terror that strikes at his heart with thoughts of death and annihilation. Alone and wearied by the pain and strife of his earthly struggles and fears of the end, he escapes into intoxicating dreams of youth and beauty, the joys of living. Finding in them only vicarious consolation, he returns to his dream world again and again by means of an intoxicant that he hopes will wash away his fears and the anguished suffering they bring. But instead of revealing the secret of the creative life, his drunken stupors merely mask it in fantastic visions, the meaning of which remain unclear. His delirious fantasies provide no relief from his longing for meaning and truth. The Tronchina really wants to know how, in the face of mortality, can Lust achieve Ewigkeit. His inner self answers in this song of farewell, by allowing creativity to blossom forth and be renewed eternally. Thus does life conquer death, not by annihilating it, but by uniting with it and forming a cyclical union that enables life to renew itself forever, forever.